a brutal killer, one who has caused so much hardship and death, has violently been eliminated. The death of the ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi late last month hit headlines around the world. He was the world's most wanted man as the leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, was responsible for a reign of terror across Iraq and Syria and copycat attacks across continents. He was killed in northwest Syria on Saturday after being targeted by U.S. forces. But in New Zealand, there's another reason it's been in the spotlight. So one possible theory was that Ms Akavi was being kept close to al-Baghdadi because of her nursing background and his death raised um, hopes that she might be found near him or in the vicinity. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and today on The Detail, the heartbreaking disappearance of a New Zealand nurse and her link with a brutal ISIS leader. Six years ago, Louisa Akavi disappeared, but that was kept top secret. Sunday Star Times editor Tracy Watkins was the first New Zealand journalist to pick up the plight of the nurse, now in her 60s. Watkins was Stuff's political editor at the time. I was on the campaign trail in 2014, during the 2014 election uh, campaign. I'd been down in Christchurch for a debate between John Key and David Cunliffe. The next day we got a call from one of our Australian sister newsrooms, Fairfax at the time, and their correspondent in the Middle East had heard rumours of a New Zealander being held hostage by ISIS. And this was right at the point where we saw a lot of those Western hostages being killed. An Indiana aid worker is the latest victim of ISIS executioners. We suddenly learnt the names of Jihadi John. Revealed at last, the masked murderer of IS has been named as Mohammed Mwazi from West London. He's believed to have beheaded several Western and Syrian hostages, including James Foley, Stephen Sotloff, David Haynes, Alan Henning and Abdurrahman Kasig. Terrifying images of people in boiler suits being beheaded. And at that point we were told, we've heard that there's a, a New Zealand a New Zealander in amongst this. So I put a call into one of my contacts and said, is this correct? And they said, well, that's a really big question. I'll get back to you. And it was probably a few hours later that I got a call from the foreign minister at the time, Murray McCulley, and sort of said, uh, can you come up and see us? So at that point, I flew up there with Sinead Butcher, who was at that time was the sort of the staff senior editor, now mm. the CEO. And we flew up there and had a meeting with uh, the foreign minister where he basically laid out the situation, told us what they knew and said, and now I'm going to ask you, would you keep this story secret for now? Because we think any publication will put Louise's life at risk. Why would it put her life at risk? Well, this was actually standard practice at the time, and it was why at the time when we first heard about it and put in the call and had a fair idea at that point that probably there was some truth to the rumour, we didn't rush into print. It had been well known at that time that Western media had cooperated in keeping the identities of the hostages secret, basically because it was felt that giving ISIS any oxygen would raise the stakes on what was essentially a propaganda game for them, killing Western hostages, instilling terror and fear into people's hearts about ISIS um, and basically just leveraging off that publicity by having a more high-profile killing. Also, ISIS, there had been proof of life offered for Louisa. There'd also been discussions about if there's any publicity about this, we will kill her. Who was having those discussions? Well, 
what we know is that when Louisa was first taken, she was with another group, ended up being passed from one group to the next before ending up with the group that we now know as ISIS. And there had been basically ransom demands in exchange for her freedom. I think it was sort of in the millions of dollars that they were asking for. And they were demanding that from the New Zealand government? No, I believe it was through the ICRC, the the Red Cross. Most of the negotiations went through the ICRC. The New Zealand government, apart from being briefed by the ICRC, I understand at that time, was not particularly involved in those discussions. And in some ways, I think they felt it was better if they stayed back from that because once it became a sort of a... A government issue, a national issue that could raise the stakes even further for Louisa. Mm. Uh, And also the ICRC had experience in negotiating the release of other hostages and they had actually negotiated the release of some of Louisa's workmates, I think, who had been taken at the same time, but unsuccessfully in Louisa's case. So those discussions had, had gone on, off and on, and then once the game changed for ISIS... The, the contact dried up and, and they lost track. The, the, the negotiations sort of just stopped. It wasn't just the national government at the time and Murray McCulley who I mean, knew about this. I mean, who knew about it? So mm. we were the first media organisation that knew about it. Mm. There was a small circle within government and it was very tightly held within government. Also, Defence, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Police, all of whom had people involved in the operation which became known as Operation Rocks. Don't ask me why, I've never actually figured out how that name came about. The Red Cross obviously was aware of it, but it was quite tightly held elsewhere. Although word did sort of tend to get out. I know that at various times in the the many years past, we had reporters that stumbled onto the story every now and then and would suddenly send an alert up through the system. I know that a few months later, other media started to get onto the story. And and they all had the same conversation that we had ultimately and made the same decision, which was not to publicise. Was that a hard decision to make? Actually, no, in the end. I think I was about 50-50 before the meeting, and then after the meeting it was just basically, no, we can't publish. We accepted the argument that it would put her life at risk. But, you know, that's something we can also question. Louisa's story goes hand in hand with that of the young American aid worker Kayla Mueller. As the civil war raged in Syria, Kayla Mueller headed toward the suffering to see how she could help. When the aid worker was taken hostage in 2013, she'd been visiting a hospital in Aleppo, Syria. Kayla spent 18 months in captivity. Louisa and Kayla shared a cell. In brutal conditions, and then she was killed in 2015. They had almost like a mother-daughter relationship. They looked out for each other. I've sort of like managed to glean this from talking to Kayla's parents who've done a lot of work trying to talk to people who were in the cells at the time. But at some point, Kayla and Louisa were separated. Kayla was sent off with some young Yazidi girls to another place. At that time when she was being moved from the prison cell that she was sharing with Louisa, she was begging people to let Louisa come with her because she was so worried about it and wanted to look out for her because Louisa was quite sick. What was she sick with? Nothing's ever been confirmed. She is diabetic and apparently she was quite ill um, through her diabetes, but also there had been a bit of a firefight and attempt to to rescue them at some point. Somewhere along the line, she um, suffered from shrapnel wounds, it's believed. So she was injured as well as just not well. 
Kayla had been sort of looking out for her, begged for her to go with them when they left, but that didn't work. Kayla then ended up being basically a slave of Baghdadi and uh, ultimately, it's believed, at some stage was killed and no one's quite sure how. ISIS is claiming the death of a 26-year-old woman from Arizona. ISIS claimed Kayla was killed in a Jordanian airstrike, but her remains have never been recovered. They maintained a lot of secrecy around their daughter's captivity. I think they've always questioned whether that was ultimately the right thing to do or whether more publicity might have put more pressure on their government to rescue her. I think in our case it's a bit different because we never really had the resources to go and rescue Louisa. We've had a lot of people over there at various times operating secretly behind the scenes and working with the Americans and others to look at rescue plans or to help with planning, but we've never actually been in a position where we could launch a rescue mission ourselves. So you agreed not to go public with it, but at the same time, did you start digging into it? Yeah, I mean, it was always obvious that it was going to be a huge story when it eventually broke. And so we, I did start to do a number of interviews. I started to try and piece together what I knew. Once I knew about Louisa, it was you you could sort of pick up the trail through other international media reports as well, which often referred obliquely to a New Zealand nurse. One of the international news organisations ran a story about Kayla Muller giving up her opportunity to escape at one point because she was worried about a sick cellmate. I knew at that time that that Louisa had been unwell and sort of put two and two together and started to make inquiries and was told, yeah, that was the New Zealand government's understanding as well, that that was the situation. That's disputed. There's other people who think maybe that wasn't how things worked, but that was what they believed to be the case. So as a result of that, then I got in touch with Kayla's parents, went over to Prescott in Arizona, talked to them about what they knew. And they they actually made a lot of inquiries into Louisa themselves because they were really quite hopeful that one day they might be able to talk to Louisa and Mm. hear more about Kayla's last few months in Syria because they've been so close and they've always kept on top of everything that's been happening with Louisa. People don't realise they advocated for her in Washington to make sure that her name wasn't forgotten. They did a lot for Louisa behind the scenes as well. We actually just talked for a long time in the kitchen before we actually sat down and did the interview and it just made you want to cry. They were communicating directly with Kayla's captors. Then they found out later about some of the horrific torture that um, had been inflicted on her, physical and emotional torture. And you just sort of talked to them and thought, how can any parents stand this? They were communicating directly with her captors. Yeah. How? Well, because they were being asked for a ransom. And so there was a lot of communication. Was it email? I think there were emails, yeah. And I think this is one of the things that they have tried to raise the profile of is the whole issue around ransoms that were paid for the hostages. Because we know that there were a number of uh, governments that did pay ransoms. In 2013, G8 leaders signed an agreement stating their governments would not pay ransoms to terrorists. But only the UK and US have stuck to their word. And they were offered an opportunity to free Kayla by paying a ransom. And there would have been people who would have quite happily given them the money to get her out. But they were advised by their government that that would be breaking the law, that they would be effectively 
enabling terrorists, if you like, and so it was against government policy, and in fact anyone who gave the money would be breaking the law as well. Taking hostages becomes seen as a guaranteed cash return. Al-Qaeda is estimated to have made more than $125 million since 2008. According to the New York Times, the French government has paid more to Al-Qaeda than any other nation, some $60 million. The New Zealand government has always said there was never a solid opportunity to discuss ransom in exchange. They said it never got to that point, and I've not sort of been able to test that at all. But whether they mean that those negotiations never reached the government stage and were just at the ICRC stage, or whether it's because it was just such a changing situation, it was so fluid, it started to be a hostage negotiation, then turned into something else and, and everything just petered away. It's, it's very hard to know. What do you know about the conditions that Louisa has had to endure because it's now six years. It is now six years. It's a phenomenal amount of time and it's quite horrific to think of what she might have had to endure. It sounds like for a long time she was in the um, prison at Raqqa and it sounds like those were pretty horrific conditions. People were being tortured there and executed. They were in small cells and there was a lot of psychological as well as physical abuse. There was suggestion that she was on the move out on the field, you know, that at one stage they moved from Raqqa to the Tapka Dam and then through various parts of the Euphrates Valley. So I imagine the conditions would have been horrific. The sad part of this, it's very, been very hard to tell Louise's story, you know. One, because she's not here to tell it, but two, because the ICRC has always been very careful not to discuss Louisa at all. They felt they'd, they've not been particularly cooperative with New Zealand media in talking about her. And her family have never wanted to talk about her, and I understand that. But I think the sadness of it is that we never really get to tell the story of this woman, who's quite remarkable. She's been mm. on the front line and nursing on the front line for just decades. She was in hospital in Chechnya, where a group of gunmen stormed the hospital in the middle of the night, murdered a number of nurses in their bed, including another New Zealand nurse that she'd gone over with. She was in the room opposite. Um, reports I've read, crept to her door and locked it, waited until the noise of the boots had gone, and then just um, ran across to try and help the other New Zealand nurse, but she and held her as she was dying, I understand. Yeah, so an incredible woman, and... The secret came out earlier this year. Yes. So why did that happen? How did that happen? Yeah, and that was quite, <laughs> that was an interesting one. And and for the media, for the New Zealand government um, as well, the ICRC told the New Zealand government that they were going to go public on Louisa after five years of silence and secrecy. The last sighting of her, her had been around about December or January in Bahus, which, of course, we all knew was an absolute hellhole. It was just being shelled and, you know, firefights and bombings. It was just the last stand, if you like, for ISIS. In its dying days, ISIS fights to the bitter end. The small, remote, otherwise unremarkable Syrian town of Bahuz el-Fokhani on the banks of the Euphrates River, where it is now finely cornered, reduced to a pinprick shadow of its former self. There hadn't been any any positive news since of Louisa. So in about April, the ICRC told the government that they were going to go public in the New York Times about it. One of the agreements which I had with the 
previous government at the time we agreed not to publish was sort of like a bit of a protocol, which was because we had known about the story first and never published it, they had agreed that they would keep us in the loop on any other approaches from media and any suggestion that the story might might go public. So I was sort of like given a heads up that this was happening and we were told it's now your call whether or not you decide that you want to preempt the New York Times. But the New Zealand government's position is still that this could put Louisa at risk. The Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says while the government knew of the Red Cross plans to go public, it in no way endorsed the decision. I met with my senior senior managers. We had the same discussion we'd had over a number a number of times over the last five years, which was constantly to test that idea. Could she be at risk if we go public? We'd always ended up on the side of yes, she possibly could. So we'll stay keep it secret for now. Once the government had come to us and talked to us about the New York Times story in the ICRC, we agreed after a long discussion again that. We accepted the, the view of the experts that it would put her at risk and we did not want to, to, to do that. Uh, but we also acknowledged that once the ICRC went public and put her name out in the public arena that the situation would change. A spokesperson for the ICRC, Pavel Kreisek, says they felt the time was right to go public as working behind the scenes wasn't succeeding. So we went public with the story after... It had been published in the New York Times. And so there was a flurry of news around that time. Well, we begin with a new story just emerging this morning. A New Zealand nurse working for the Red Cross was captured by Islamic State in Syria more than five years ago. And then the story disappeared again. Well, it disappeared, and this is again the very difficult thing, because the advice of the government was still that they still believed it could put her at risk to just keep repeating the story and putting it out there. I think in the end we just decided, well, we'll just wait and see if there's any further breakthroughs. That was in April. We're now looking at November. There's been absolutely no new sightings of her. There's been no new intelligence. There was a theory for a little while that maybe she had been spirited out of Bahus with Baghdadi and his lieutenants, if you like, kept close because of her nursing skills, which presumably had enabled her to survive for so long because she was of such value to them as a nurse. But talking to various people about that theory that maybe she'd been kept close to that sort of senior leadership, they've said there's absolutely no evidence that that was the case. It was Mm -hmm. a good theory, but not anything that's been backed up or supported by sightings or intelligence or anything like that. So the death of Baghdadi and no sign of the hostages that we know of suggests that probably she wasn't there either. What we do know is that Bahus was an absolute bloodbath when you know ISIS was making its last stand there. Flares illuminate the skies over Bahus. The sounds of battle echo in the distance. The final battle is in its final days. We have no idea whether she was able to escape the village or not. So when was the last contact or sighting of her? Well, there's some dispute. I think the New Zealand government believes December and I think the ICRC believes January. But I, I think they're both talking about the same sighting. Um, it's just the details of the date seems to be a bit bit fuzzy. It's what they consider to be, you know, not 100%, but quite, quite a good um, identification. Basically, they showed a series of photographs of women to the witnesses, if you like, 
and Louise was picked out of the first set of photographs. Then they got another set of photographs and put her photograph in the middle of that and asked them to pick her out again, and they picked her out again. Mm. So that's as definitive as it gets. That was in Bahu's. So now it's nearly a year then since the last contact or sighting. So what's the thinking? It would be fair to say that hope is fading. You know, I think uh, one of the things that everyone has said about Louisa is she's incredibly resilient and that if you're going to have anyone who would survive in those sort of circumstances, she's the sort of person who could. She survived some incredible situations in her life already. Mm. And we do know that there are something like 70,000 people in the displaced persons camp in Syria. ABC journalist Dylan Welsh has visited a refugee camp in Syria, which now houses ISIS fighters and about 72,000 families. He says the camp holds about 11,000 foreigners, and if Louisa Akavi is there or in any other camp, she'll be hard to find. My view would be that it's going to be dependent on whether Louisa herself comes forward and identifies herself if she is in one of these camps. If that doesn't happen, it's going to be very hard for people to find her. It's quite a hostile environment for aid workers or Western authorities to move around. So could she be in the middle of that camp? Possibly. But the fact that there's been absolutely no evidence since, I think, means that, well, they just haven't got any leads to go on. There's been a team of New Zealanders in the region for the last six years, and I gather it's a very small team at the moment compared to some at some points when there's been quite a high level of optimism about where she might be. That team has grown quite substantially. The other day I had to address some young reporters about it, and I ended up surprising myself by crying because I think the fact that There's never been a happy ending. I think I always thought there probably would be. Did you have a feeling that she would still be alive? Yeah, I always believed that that was more likely than not. But, as you say, it's been nearly a year since any positive sighting. But I think it would have been such an amazing thing if there had been a happy ending. Um, And, you know, who knows? There might still be. It's just a story for me. It's not... It's not my life, and um, I can only imagine what her family must have been going through for that time. She had an elderly mother who never learnt about it because she was just unwell at the time Louisa was taken, and yeah. Where to next for you with this story? I would still like to tell Louisa's story, and I think that's the big missing part of this is just trying to um, talk more about her because she's a pretty remarkable woman pretty remarkable New Zealander. I'd like to think that in some way she'll be recognised at some point. That's Tracy Watkins. That's the detail for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. Kakite anō.